You can open your Bible or navigate on your device to Revelation chapter 2. We're looking at the church at Smyrna this morning. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. That's our text. The topic, Jesus tells the persecuted church in Smyrna the blunt truth that they can expect their suffering to get much worse, including a period of time he calls tribulation for 10 days. The title of our message, The Ten-Day Forecast. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we've gathered here today, as we want to listen to the Word of God read and we want it to study us as we study it, uh, the Scripture itself says, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We want to be those people whose ears are open. We want to be servants, Lord, who are ready to obey Uh, ready to be filled with your spirit, Lord, so that when we leave this place and encounter friends and family and strangers out in the world, they'll, they'll see, Lord, that you're alive and that you're coming soon and that they'll wonder after uh, your love and that they'll know, Lord, that the thing that's missing in their hearts, in their lives, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Most perfumes make sense to me, pun intended. There are some fragrances, however, that are downright weird. Let me give a few examples. These are real perfumes either you could have bought at one time or still can. Eau de Pizza Hut. It was a real product. The limited edition fragrance commemorated Pizza Hut Canada reaching the 100,000 Facebook fan milestone. It smelled like, and I quote, Freshly baked hand-tossed dough. While we're talking food chains, Flame by BK is Burger King's perfume. It's supposed to smell like, quote, meat and seduction. I'm not going to say any more about that. Demeter markets a perfume called Earthworm. What's perplexing is that the reviews of it are mostly positive. Sephora sells a scent called Fresh Cannabis, very popular in Colorado. (laughs) How about Frisky Pirate? That's described as smelling like you are wrapped in leather, smoke, and (laughs) gunpowder. Want to walk around smelling like you just finished playing with a classroom of kids? Well, you can work in the nursery, or you could grab a bottle of Demeter's officially licensed Play-Doh cologne. If you're especially fond of elephants, tightropes, and bearded women, Lardisan Perfumier's Dezing is intended to smell like the circus. Now, fragrances play a metaphoric role in Jesus' letter to the church in Smyrna. The city was so named because of the export trade of myrrh, a gum resin product taken from a certain tree that was an important ingredient in lots of fragrances. The gum resin would be collected from the tree by making an incision in the outer bark. Then it would be allowed to harden. It released its fragrance only when it was crushed. The believers in Smyrna were being systematically crushed by Roman persecution. And their persecution was going to get much more intense. So Jesus encouraged them to release a sweet fragrance while being crushed. We might call it the fragrance of eternal life. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, 
When he was crushed for you, Jesus emitted the fragrance of eternal life. And number two, when you are crushed for Jesus, you can emit the fragrance of eternal life. Let's take a look at Jesus in verse 8. Now, the city of Smyrna was a center of emperor worship in first century Rome. 26 AD, she had been chosen over several other cities in a competition to be the site of a temple built to honor Tiberius Caesar. It was required by Roman law that once each year, every citizen offer a pinch of incense incense on the altar at the temple and say out loud, Caesar is Lord. The believers in Smyrna could not with a clear conscience offer incense and say the words Caesar is Lord because Jesus is Lord. Because they refused, they were subjected to both official and unofficial persecution. In other words, the government turned the other way when they were being mistreated uh, by fellow citizens. Maybe more than any of the other churches, therefore, Smyrna was hanging on every word Jesus had to say. And so verse 8 To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. The angel of the church in Smyrna, their pastor, uh, because the word angel means messenger, he got up on a Sunday and he read aloud the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, they'd been praying for sure, seeking the Lord. How would he answer them? You and I pray and sometimes the Lord's answers are very, very clear, are they not? But other times they're not so clear. Maybe circumstantial, or maybe somebody says something to you, maybe you get a verse and you're, you're really trying to get that answer or his answer seems delayed. Well, these guys were suffering persecution. Uh, they had been praying about it and they were going to receive a letter directly from Jesus. Wouldn't it be wonderful if when you prayed, Jesus wrote you a letter and told you the answer to your prayer, told you exactly what you should be focused on. So this is a pretty exciting moment for them. And so Jesus starts and he identifies himself as the first and the last. That's encouraging. This means more than just the fact Jesus is eternal. First and last is a title for the Almighty God in the Old Testament. You'll find it in Isaiah uh, chapters 41, 44, and 48, for example. And so Jesus is declaring that he is God. It is also obviously meant to convey that there is a plan. There was a first, there will be a last, and this conveys the truth that Jesus superintends everything in between. And so this is very encouraging if you're the church at Smyrna. You're suffering intense persecution, and Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the almighty God, and I have a plan. But what Jesus says next is a defining moment for them. It sets the tone for their immediate future. Speaking of his own gospel mission on the earth, Jesus said he was dead and came to life. He was rejected by men, persecuted unto death on the cross, and then three days later, he was resurrected from the dead. They, of course, knew this. So what did Jesus mean by this? Well, I offer this paraphrase of his words to the Smyrnans. Beloved, I died at the hands of wicked men for the sake of the gospel, and so will some of you. But you will live on after death in your resurrection, which is guaranteed by my resurrection. That's what he was saying to them. Reminds you of his words in Matthew 10, 28, where the Lord said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. 
Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The Hebrew scripture spoke of Jesus' death on the cross as his being crushed. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 in the New International Version reads like this. It says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Myrrh was especially associated with the suffering of Jesus Christ throughout his entire life. The Magi, you remember, brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh as gifts for the uh, infant child Jesus. Myrrh was significant in that it was used as an embalming agent. Their gift of myrrh indicated that Jesus was born to die. As he hung on the cross, Jesus was offered wine wingled, uh, mingled with myrrh, or wingled, uh, might have been... <laughs> That's Esperanto creeping through. Yeah, so anyway, uh, with myrrh to drink. Myrrh in this form was an anesthetic. At his burial, Jesus was anointed with myrrh according to the burial customs of his time. The crushing of Jesus released the sweetest fragrance the world has ever or will ever know. His death on the cross released mankind to breathe the sweet fragrance of eternal life as he resolved once and for all the matter of sin and separation from God. Now it was his followers who could expect to be crushed to release that same fragrance. This fragrance metaphor is used by the Apostle Paul, for example, in Ephesians 5.2 where you read, Christ loved us and gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The believers in Smyrna were being systematically crushed. Jesus was writing to comfort and encourage the saints at Smyrna as they were being crushed for his sake. They were being treated just like he had been treated. And they could expect the victory that their Lord had received, resurrection from the dead, to rule and reign in the kingdom of heaven on the earth. I couldn't help but think of those good news, bad news scenarios. You know, when someone says, I've got good news and I've got bad news, which would you like first? The truth is, though, in Jesus, there is only good news. But isn't being told that your persecution will only get worse bad news? It never seemed to be bad news for those who were martyred, did it? It is when they seem their strongest and their best. Their grace in dying for Christ smelled to others like salvation, it smelled like eternal life. It's impossible to know how many Christians were martyred by Rome. Estimates range from only about 1,000, which has to be wrong, to nearly 100,000, which could be right. What we can say is that more believers have been martyred in the last 50 years than in the church's first 300 years. We have a tendency to think that martyrdom, Christian persecution, is a thing of the distant past that it only happened under the Roman emperor, uh, emperors for the first 300 years of the church's existence. But more Christians have been martyred the last 50 years than, the, than in the first 300 years. We don't see it in our country, but the rest of the world, uh, Christians are literally dying for Jesus Christ. To each of them, Jesus was dead and came to life. He didn't call upon them to do something for him, that he had not already done for them. We sing, make me like you, Lord, make me like you. You are a servant 
Make me one too. Or we pray all the time. Lord, I want to be a servant. I want to serve you. And rightfully, we mean, Lord, I want more of your Holy Spirit. Uh, Renew me and refresh me in the Spirit of God. Show me what to do. Help me, those kinds of things. But I think we ought to also remember that Jesus was God's suffering servant. He came to die. He went to the cross. So when you and I pray uh, to be servants, we are praying that God will give us the grace to go all the way in our service if necessary. Now, in verses nine through 11, when you are crushed for Jesus, you can emit the fragrance of eternal life. If you're a fan of the Avengers, you'll remember the scene in the blockbuster film when Natasha Romanoff, also known as the Black Widow, was conducting an interrogation, she said. It was a very unusual interrogation because she was being held captive and being tortured at the time. Of course, she had everything under control and was able to turn the tables on her captors, getting the information she was seeking while defeating them. Her capture and torture were all part of her greater strategy. It's not a great illustration, but I offer it to show that we do understand that a battle can be won or an objective achieved even when we seem to be losing. Persecution is a little like that. To an observer, it would seem that the persecutors have the upper hand. But there is just too much history of believers being persecuted even unto death, resulting in spiritual gain. Let me put it another way. Sometimes being persecuted is the plan, and that's how we get the victory. It was that way in Smyrna, because look at verse 9. He says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The word works does not appear in most of the ancient manuscripts from which we translate the Bible into modern languages. They simply read, I know your tribulation. The Greek word chosen by Jesus to describe their persecution, their tribulation, was tribulum. It has the following uses in other Greek literature. It was used of executing a man by putting a heavy boulder upon him. As his strength gradually failed, the boulder would gradually crush him. It was used of wheat that is ground into flour as it was crushed under the heavy grinding stone. And it was used to describe the crushing of grapes to produce juice. Poverty is the word used of the most destitute beggars. It wasn't just that they were poor and had little, they had nothing. In Smyrna, if a person refused to offer their pinch of incense to Caesar, he could be excluded from the trade guilds and you could no longer work to earn a living. And as traders to Rome, their goods could be confiscated and given to the loyal citizens who would swear allegiance to Caesar and who might turn them in as traitors. It's not improbable that a time is coming when we might have to say no to Caesar. It can happen in your part of the world at any time, depending upon the laws that are passed. There are many stories in the news, uh, contemporary stories of, say, business owners who refuse to do certain things because of their conscience and then the government steps in and shuts them down or fines them or, in some cases, imprisons them. And so, uh, though we're not really in the same situation uh, the church at Smyrna was in, there is persecution in the United States. We haven't been called to suffer unto death at this point, uh, but you just never know when that might kick in. 
the believers were being crushed by poverty, but Jesus said of them, you're rich. They were rich in the commodities of the kingdom of heaven. Listen to these verses, Matthew 6, 20. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. James 2, 5. My beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Your true wealth can only be measured in spiritual terms. You are a gazillionaire from heaven's perspective. Now, the believers were also being crushed by what Jesus calls blasphemy. Again, in verse 9, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The synagogue of Satan was blaspheming the Christians, fueling the Roman persecution. For example, we know that Christians were sometimes actually accused of cannibalism because they spoke of eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus. The metaphor Jesus used on uh, the night of his crucifixion uh, there at what we call the Last Supper about the bread and the wine, eating my body, drinking my blood. When you said that in the first century, there was a good chance that you were a cannibal uh, because they dealt with cannibals and those kinds of cultures. Uh, I, I think there are cannibals still today. Uh, they live in Kern County, so we don't have to worry about it too much. But anyway, I'm just, man, am I going to get flamed for that? The last time I made fun of, uh, I had to apologize, and I, 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 I made fun of Northern California, and I heard about it. Uh, and so uh, I apologize right now. Kern County, Jesus loves you <laughs> and has a wonderful plan for your life. God bless you. I no longer live on Peralta Way. Uh, anyway, and so they, they were accusing them of all kinds of crazy things. Now, Jesus identifies them as those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. It's easy to point at the first century Jews who were antagonistic, to say the least, to Jesus Christ and his followers, and say that they were those who Jesus was describing. Indeed, the Lord himself had once told a group of Jewish leaders that their father was the devil. I'm not so sure anymore these guys were physically Jews. For one thing, the words taken at face value are, they say they are Jews and they are not. We assume Jesus was saying that even though they were born Israelites, they're not really Jews because they had rejected him, but that's an assumption. The words say they are not Jews. Why would they say they are Jews if they were not Jews? Well, I struggled with that for a while, but then I realized that folks throughout history have done exactly that. Let me give you one example some of you may be aware of. If not, it's a very famous historical example. There is something called British Israelism. Anybody ever heard of that? British Israelism or sometimes called Anglo-Israelism. It's a teaching based on the hypothesis that the people of Western European descent, particularly those in Great Britain, are the direct lineal descendants of the 10 supposedly lost tribes of Israel. When Assyria invaded the northern kingdom of Israel, the 10 tribes to the north, and carried them away captive, people say they are lost to history, but that they migrated to the British Isles and are the ancestors of the people of Great Britain. There's no proof for this. It's absolutely not true, but it is a theory that people hold to. 
The doctrine often includes the teaching that the British royal family is directly descended from the line of King David. And so they are a, a people who say they are the true Israel of God, but they are Gentiles, they're not Jews. And so historically, and there's a bunch of groups like this throughout history, by the way, historically it isn't unusual at all for a group of Gentiles to claim they are the true Israel of God. It is at least possible that the synagogue of Satan in Smyrna was a group of Gentiles. Now we wanna be careful reading things into a text that aren't there because of where it can lead us. Once you come to a conclusion, it has consequences. A popular reform commentator by the name of William Hendrickson says this about the synagogue of Satan. How anyone can say that the Jews of today are still in a special and glorious and preeminent sense, God's people is more than we can understand. God himself calls those who reject the Savior and persecute true believers the synagogue of Satan. They are no longer his people. Now, that is a subtle but serious form of anti-Semitism, and it leads to greater anti-Semitism. It leads to people calling Jews the synagogue of Satan, Christ killers. It leads to the Holocaust. God is not through with ethnic Israel. In point of fact, the bulk of this book will describe the seven-year tribulation on the earth, which is elsewhere in God's word called the time of Jacob's trouble. It is so named that because God will draw physical Israel, the literal Jews, back to himself and all of Israel will be saved. And so uh, we just want to be careful. Uh, for my money, for my two cents, the synagogue of Satan is some crazy group of Gentiles that believe they are the true Israel of God. Now, get back into the text, verse 10, get ready for something heavy that I've mentioned a few times already. Jesus tells these suffering saints that the worst was yet to come. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. You will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. Notice the key phrases I tried to uh, emphasize when I was reading. They were about to suffer, about to be thrown into prison. They will have tribulation. Poverty and blasphemy were just the beginning of their tribulum, their crushing. It would get worse. Some of them would be called upon to be faithful unto death. They were going to be called upon to die for their testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's realize at least four things about being crushed from this text. First, being crushed is satanic in its cause. Satan was behind the efforts to crush them. He is behind efforts to crush you. Maybe not directly, but indirectly through his demonic uh, minions, for lack of a better word, the fallen angels. And the Bible says that non-believers can be taken captive by the devil to do his will. Doesn't mean they're possessed. It means that they are available to him uh, in their normal, immoral, unspiritual, carnal ways to be used as tools against you. Is Satan merely a dupe doing exactly what God tells him to do? I don't think so. He is exercising his free will to be a malevolent, rebellious murderer. He's a defeated foe, but he wages war against the victorious people of God. We face him in spiritual battle 
we assume because he was defeated at the cross that we need not suffer at his hands. However, sometimes we're called upon to have the Natasha Romanoff strategy of being taken captive and tortured in order to obtain a spiritual advantage or objective. Unlike the legendary Black Widow in the movies, Christians don't always survive. But we are always victorious whether we live or whether we die. And this is when I always quote my friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who spoke to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon when they refused to bow down to his idol. And he said, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace and kill you. They said with victorious confidence, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not careful to answer you. Our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But if not, we're still not going to bow to your idol. And you get what they were saying? They were saying, we already have victory, and it doesn't matter what you do. You throw us in the furnace, he's liable to save us, which he did, or he's liable to let us die, which he didn't. But either way, we've already won because we refuse to bow to you, and there's a power and a grace and a presence and a smell to us that you can't account for. And that's what we're being told in Smyrna. That sometimes the strategy isn't what we think it is in terms of victory, but it's an ultimate victory. Second, being crushed is spiritual in its effect. In verse 10, Jesus says, it comes that you may be tested. Job put it best when he, being crushed by suffering, by Satan himself, said, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Third, being crushed is short in its duration. You will have tribulation 10 days had a very definite duration. The exact meaning of 10 days is debated by scholars. I think it's best to think of it, first of all, as a literal period of 10 days during which horrendous persecution was going to be unleashed upon the believers in Smyrna by the devil. There's nothing in the text to suggest that immediately that it is symbolic. Uh, you know, and, and so we don't need to go looking for the meaning of the word 10 or anything like that. Jesus was saying there's coming a 10-day period of time when you guys are really, really going to be under the gun. You know, it can be quite comforting to know how long exactly some pain or suffering is going to last. It is, in fact, one of the things we almost always want to know in what seems to be a bad situation. How long do I have is often the first thing out of our mouths when we are diagnosed, let's say, with a terminal disease. There's something comforting about knowing that what I'm going through has a set duration. No matter what's at the end of it, at least I know when it's going to be over. Ten days probably does mean more than this, too. Because as we've said before, these letters to the churches have meaning and application beyond the specific local circumstances of each church. With regards to the 10 days, it's been suggested that it was also predictive of 10 periods of extreme persecution by various emperors of Rome. With hindsight, we can look back. Historians have, in fact, identified exactly 10 emperors who actually and officially persecuted Christians. You might recall, too, that we see these churches in the order they are presented as predictive of church history from the first century all the way to today. 
The letter to Ephesus represents the church of the first century or what we would call the apostolic church, the church that existed when the apostles were still alive. What happened after that from the first century to about the third century, till about 312 A.D.? Well, what happened was persecution against the church up until the time Constantine became emperor of the Roman Empire. And so Smyrna would represent that historical period of time. Whether or not the early church understood this, because we're looking backwards and it makes more sense to us because we see history uh, more perfectly, nevertheless, it fits. The crushing would have a definite fixed duration. Every trial, every affliction, every suffering is short when you look at it from eternity. doesn't seem short to you. I don't know how many times have you been, you ever been in really intense pain and then you've said, man, it felt like it was going to last forever. Then you've had a kidney stone <laughs> or something terribly similar to that. Uh, but, you know, maybe it doesn't, doesn't always last that long. Uh, but from eternity's perspective, well, yeah, it's, it's very short. And every crushing is also light. The Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4.17, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I don't know if he meant to do this, but Paul kind of brings these two ideas together. He says, We're there's a weight of glory. And so we don't care about the crushing weight of persecution or about cell phones that go off. We don't care about that. Um, we don't care about that weight. And every affliction, every crushing weight is also a light affliction. It's just a small thing. Now, what's fun about that is that Paul never had anything that we would consider a light affliction. Shipwrecks and stonings were all part of his daily job description. I wonder what kind of sense of humor the Apostle Paul had. I wonder if he did. Do you think he did? I think he did. You think he got up in the morning? I mean, would you like to hang out with the Apostle Paul? Be honest, you don't, he's a guy that you really don't want to hang out with. He'd get up in the morning, and while he was getting ready, you know, for the day's mission, say, hey, guys, what do you think today? We've booked a passage on that ship, uh, you know, out of Corinth. You think we're going to go down? You, you, what do you think? Because, you know, I've been in some really heinous shipwrecks. That last one was a doozy. You think we're going down? Uh, gee, Paul, I don't know. He said, oh, don't worry about it. Our light affliction works for us a far more eternal weight of glory. Hey, you know, when we go over the pass there, notorious for robbers, I bet we get robbed and left for dead and naked and have to crawl naked into the city. What do you think? I think I'm going to stay behind. That's what I think. And Paul could look at all of that, all of the bruise. I mean, if you ever, you know, you ever see that scene in the movies where the guy's putting his shirt on and his, his back is all burned or whipped or whatever, and you think, wow, this guy's been through it. Man, Paul... Paul had been through it. He'd been shipwrecked, left for dead, stoned to death, whipped many times, imprisoned. This is my light affliction. It works for me a far and more eternal weight of glory. I don't care about the weight of crushing because I have a weight of glory. Now, the fourth thing we learn here is being crushed is sweet in its result. It releases the fragrance of eternal life. And specifically here, it smells like fearlessness and faithfulness. That'd be a great Christian fragrance fearlessness and faithfulness, F and F, we call it. I'm, I, I copyright that right now. I'm marketing that. Do not fear, Jesus said, when crushed, it's possible to be fearless. A sweet fragrance is released in your life and from your life as you face danger and difficulty with no fear from the grace of God. 
Be faithful unto death, Jesus said. Some of the believers at Smyrna and later under the reign of Diocletian and later under the reign of each of the other Caesars who did persecute the church would die. Again, a sweet fragrance was released as they faced death with the grace of God. On Saturday, February 23rd, 155 AD, the angel of the church at Smyrna was Polycarp, who was faithful unto death. At age 86, he was ordered to burn incense at the altar of Caesar. He refused, and, it was, and he was sentenced to be burned at the stake. Church tradition says the fire failed to come near him, so a guard pierced him with a sword, and that his bleeding then extinguished the flames. He died from blood loss, and then he was placed on the fire and burned. Fox's Book of Martyrs records the smell of his burning, saying that it was, quote, not as burning flesh, but as gold and silver refining in a furnace. We received also in our nostrils such a fragrance as proceeds from precious perfume. You might call Polycarp, wait for it, a merman. <laughs> Get it? Thank you. <laughs> Literally, at that time and spiritually throughout history, a sweet fragrance was released at Polycarp's martyrdom. Your crushing is intended to release a sweet fragrance to all who encounter you. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Jesus promised them the crown of life. It's interesting because the various temples scattered around Smyrna were called the crown of Smyrna. It's a play on words, and Jesus is saying, don't worry about the world and what they say is popular. You will have the crown of life. There's a scene in the film, The Right Stuff, where one of the newbie test pilots looks at the wall behind the bar. It's filled with photographs of the pilots who've preceded him. The newbie says, I'm going to be on that wall. And everybody starts laughing in a sarcastic way, and he figures that he must have said something stupid. And so he finally asks what the deal was. And I think it's the bartender says, the way you get on that wall is by dying, crashing, and burning while pushing the limits of flight. The crown of life is like that. It is only earned by martyrs. There's many other crowns for you and I, but there is a crown of life that is restricted to martyrs. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. You have an ear to hear, do you not? So these verses are addressed to you and I. He who overcomes has at least two senses. In one sense, you are already an overcomer because you are a born-again child of God. In another sense, you're expected to actually overcome on a daily basis, to, to really walk with the Lord. The second death is explained later in Revelation chapter 20. It is the judgment of all non-believers from all of time before Jesus Christ at what is called the great white throne. Having rejected eternal life by grace through faith in the Lord, they are cast alive into the lake of fire, what we call hell, to spend eternity separated from God in conscious torment. Christians need have no fear of death or of the second death. Death for the believers is a departure for home. Though some in Smyrna would die, they could not be defeated. The 10-day forecast in Smyrna was for crushing with a chance of martyrdom. It was an accurate forecast. Let me give you one final picture. 
There are at least six references in the Old Testament to individuals whose trade was to produce and manufacture perfumes or incenses or fragrances. These people were and still are called apothecaries. Jesus Christ is your heavenly apothecary. When you find yourself in Smyrna, that is when you are in the world being crushed for your testimony, Jesus will bring forth a sweet fragrance of eternal life. Believers will be blessed by it. Non-believers will be challenged by it. You are the merman. You are the mermaid. Let's pray. Music.